Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbuster, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey, revisiting 80s movies, is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. I've come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. That's right, listeners. We are discussing with spoilers of plenty the 1988 action sci-fi movie They Live, starring Roddy Piper, Keith David, and Meg Foster. Directed by John Carpenter, this movie is rated R with a running time of one hour and thirty-four minutes. They Live is an adaptation of Ray Nelson's science fiction short story Eight O'clock in the Morning, which was originally published in the 1960s. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. They influence our decisions without us knowing it. They numb our senses without us feeling it. They control our lives without us realizing it. They live. Horror master John Carpenter directs this action-packed sci-fi thriller about one man's battle against aliens who are systematically gaining control of the Earth. Rugged Roddy Piper stars as the loner who stumbles upon a terrifying discovery. Ghoulish creatures are masquerading as humans while they lull the public into submission through subliminal advertising messages. Only specially made sunglasses make the deadly truth visible. Suspenseful science fiction and heart-pounding action highlight this masterfully ironic and startling tale co-starring Keith David and Meg Foster. They live. They live. That was what's on the box. How are we doing, Jason? Fantastic. Can't wait to break this one open. Let's get into this cult classic sci-fi horror film from the year 1988. That's right. So let's move on to our earliest memories. What are our earliest memories about They Live? Jason, start us off. My earliest memory is that I've always liked this movie. How about that? I had been introduced to JC's directorial style. That's John Carpenter, not Jesus Christ. With movies such as Halloween, Escape from New York, The Thing, I absolutely adored Starman, definitely loved Big Trouble in Little China, which we covered on this very pod. So... I'm 15 years old when this comes out, and this is what John Carpenter's last film of the 80s, at least his uh, last directorial film of the 80s, and I'm digging his style. JC and sci-fi, I'm always up for it. So this was a repeat cable watch for me. I remember Roddy Piper starring this, of course, a.k.a. Rowdy Roddy Piper, and I knew of him as a professional wrestler. Although I was never a big fan of wrestling, and uh, I was curious as to his acting ability. I remember that. I remember being pleasantly surprised as I found that he could carry himself. He had a presence on screen and a sense of some comic timing in his delivery. I understood why he was in the movie as he is kind of a taller, muscled dude. So he fit right in with our other 80s action movie heroes at the time. I, of course, remember the special sunglasses. The dark sunglasses that reveal all, the magic sunglasses that reveal to the wearer all the underlying subliminal messages that are being displayed around us on billboards and magazine stands. Remember magazine stands, Bill Bant? You don't see those too often. There's still some around. They're they're hanging around. They're dying, dying breed. Yes, they are. So we see these messages, even on printed money. Messages like obey, submit, consume, no independent thought. But most importantly, the sunglasses reveal the true identity of a corporate overlord's 
those who appear as normal humans. Well, when you put the glasses on, you see they just happen to be ghoulish aliens that look like they've had the skin on their faces removed. They're just freakish. But bottom line, when a person puts on the sunglasses, they become aware that aliens have invaded Earth and are hiding among us while attempting to take over through their subliminal messaging through all media, not just printed, but through television signals as well. And I, you know, remember Meg Foster. Gosh, we discussed her a bit recently on our Leviathan pod. She's just got that look, ice cold blue eyes that give her an ice cold expression. She's stunning to look at. But it's like you can't look away, but she most definitely exudes a palpable sexuality and you can't help but get an eerie feeling that she's up to no good. Her voice always betrays an evil undertone as well, smooth yet with a hint of rasp. Anywho, every time I think of this movie, I think of her eyes. So that's an early memory for me. Now that quote from the top of our pod, I've come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. I mean, I've said that, I've quoted that from this film. Since our college days, Bill Bant at the University of Miami, Florida, that is my favorite movie quote of all time. I remember writing it on someone's marker board on a dorm room door at some point. It's simply the best. And Roddy Piper is the man to deliver it. Although I recall it making a resurgence in the first person like video game shooter, Duke Nukem. Do you remember this, Bill Bant? He says in the video game, this is an early memory for me. Yeah. He says... It's time to kick ass and chew bubblegum, and I'm all out of gum. It's a, a ripoff of that quote. Well, maybe just more of an homage. Let's put it that way. I was, But I remember hearing that in the video game and going, like, wait, wait, wait. That's from They Live. I, of course, remember the ultimate street fight taking place in an alley between Roddy Piper and Keith David. Yes, Keith David. He's in this movie, and he's awesome because he's always awesome. I haven't seen this in a long time. However, I remember that the film felt kind of short and quick and it had a bit of a darker ending and that feeling stayed with me over the years. Lastly, I just remember loving the sci-fi concept. It wasn't that complicated. It was fun and it did actually make me think a little bit, you know, are the aliens actually among us here now? <laughs> it kind of makes you a little bit uh, think a little bit about class separation, us just doing as we are told, walking around like mindless drones, punching in and punching out like good little worker bees, never questioning the status quo. And John Carpenter's just got a way of of telling the story. Uh, you know, I remember just the bit of a slow paced beginning and before you know it, you're in it. And then all of a sudden you're out and you're like, I got to think about what just happened, but I'm pretty sure it was really cool. So I was really looking forward to this rewatch and spoiler, I wasn't disappointed. Bill Bant, what are your earliest memories? Yeah, I wanted to see this movie because of Rowdy Roddy Piper. I was a fan of the wrestling in the early to mid 80s. If I say Roddy Piper and Jimmy Superfly Snooka, and you're a fan of wrestling, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Jake the Snake Roberts, Macho Man, Hulkamania, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Oh this goes God. on and on. So I wanted to see this movie because Piper was in it, and I wanted to see what this was all about. And I remember the first time it was a cable watch, and I had to record it because I can't remember why. But I do remember I had to leave to go to something with my parents because my grandfather was actually watching my brother and sister. I'm thinking it had something to do with college. And we had the movie on and I got to watch about the first act. And I remember telling my grandfather, if you want to watch something else, you have to hit this button and don't stop the recording. Because I think it wasn't on for like another two and a half weeks and I didn't want to wait that long to watch it. So I was giving him all these instructions with the VCR. So I caught the beginning, of course, and then came back and I asked him, how was the rest of the movie? He's like, oh, I shut it off. 
Oh, okay. So I watched it the next day and didn't disappoint. I really enjoyed it. Like I said, the discovery of what is among us was great. The line you said at the beginning, what a classic line. The fight between Piper and David. It's just amazing. And it's a fight that never ends. It just goes on and on and on. And I love it. Spoiler alert, Meg Foster, you bitch. You did it again. You two-time traitor. <laughs> Certainly did not see that coming. For me, the whole homelessness aspect to it. You know, I grew up in the city of Philadelphia. I certainly saw a lot of homelessness, but never in communities like you see in that film. So I think that was kind of surprising to me how all of them kind of made a community out of it and helped each other and right. shared resources. I found that kind of fascinating. Of course, now living out here, it's everywhere now. It's such a mess that we need to take care of. But um, I think that was my first time really seeing it in that light. Usually you're used to just seeing one person sleeping in a doorway or unfortunately sleeping in their car, but not where they have shacks and tents and just whatever material they can find to build something. That was very surprising to me. The ending was interesting. The whole thing with the aliens, how part of you almost thinks, is this, is this really happening? Could this really be happening? It's sci-fi and it's fantasy, but there's part of you like, oh, this could be true. It makes so much sense with what the bearded man is saying on TV. It was kind of scary. And then even listening to today, he's still hitting the same points. So I don't know. But yeah, that's my earliest memories of They Live. I love the story about you teaching your grandfather how to use the remote properly so he didn't shut off the recording if he decided to turn off the TV. And I thought that was going to end badly. I thought for sure you'd set us up for disappointment here, meaning of your personal disappointment that he had hit the wrong button and discontinued the recording, and then you couldn't watch it for another two and a half weeks. But thankfully, that did not happen. I like that you touched on the homelessness issue and that that was highlighted for you when you saw this when you were younger. And obviously now it is very much a topic. And, you know, I have had friends, still have friends that have been homeless people that were close to me, and I've learned from their experiences and how in certain areas of homelessness, they do have very specific tight-knit communities, and there is a hierarchy within that community. People are assigned jobs. Sometimes people are given official positions, like they have a small government of sorts, where there is a mayor and things like that. So there is some sort of order that everybody helps one another to get by, to survive. And that's how it works. So when we see that in this film, it made sense to me. Uh, I had forgotten about that aspect of the film before uh, rewatching it just today. It's interesting because they do have it figured out as to how to keep that small community and what Wikipedia actually calls like a shanty town on the outskirts of the city where the homeless reside and these drifters reside. They are able to stay alive and, uh, stay warm and provide shelter for one another and food. But yes, this film definitely has a social commentary aspect. I mean, it's very, very clear. I mean, John oh, yeah. made that clear, and we'll probably touch on that when we get to facts and trivia a little bit more. But thanks for your early memories, Bill Bant. Are we moving into initial thoughts? Yes. What's our initial thoughts of They Live? Yeah. What did I think about They Live? I freaking love this movie, man. <laughs> Let's just start with and no big surprise, the John Carpenter, and I should say also Alan Haworth, or Alan Haworth, score, the musical score, five notes, baby. He keeps it simple, over and, over and it's again. great. 
I can't get it up. Boom, 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 boom. I'm not even doing it right, but it's like five notes. Boom, 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 boom. That's all you need. And it runs throughout the movie and it's perfect. It develops a rhythm from the start. It kind of gets you into this, this rhythm of sorts. And we're introduced to Roddy Piper as the drifter. He's credited on IMDb as the character Nada, but we'll probably get into that again later in Facts and Trivia. But he is not named in the film. He has no name. We just know him basically as the Drifter. I mean, you can give him different names, but I'm calling him the Drifter. And now the Drifter, also known as the Stranger, is a classic archetype and one I've always been fond of. And here's a paragraph from TVTropes.org. Like a gust of wind, the Drifter quietly blows into a troubled town. He's low-key and usually the quiet one that's not looking for trouble. He has a mysterious past and may even have a dark and troubled past. He'll rarely raise the interest or curiosity of the townspeople or the big bad that's been slowly draining the town of all life and money. Usually, he just wants an odd job to make ends meet before leaving again, the implication being that he's running from someone or walking the earth for the fun of it or finding a good home for himself. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty spot on. So I immediately go to the man with no name, a.k.a. Clint Eastwood from the Sergio Leone Western Spaghetti Trilogy. But here is Roddy Piper, and it's a character I could never be, but always wanted to be a man who just goes from town to town with a sleeping bag, a harmonica, and a backpack full of tools and makes his own some way, somehow. Another trope character I love is the prophet, or in this case, we get a blind street preacher warning the townspeople to beware of those in power, saying that they're all lying and stealing. Now, I love the sci-fi dystopian future or alternate reality vision of this world. We have this concept of an America that has been in a recession. Many, probably millions of people have been laid off. Banks have closed. Steel mills have shut down. It's a true corporate America, commercial, commercialized America. The guys at the top have all the money and the power and in a sense have begun to eradicate the middle class, creating a larger and more impoverished lower class that is left to fight for themselves and among themselves, as we learn from Frank, the character played by the great Keith David. When he's taking Roddy around the homeless encampment just outside the city limits. Speaking of Keith David, initial thoughts continued here. Like I mentioned, he's awesome. You know, for me, Bill, he's similar to Reginald Vell Johnson or Powers Booth or John C. Riley or Philip Baker Hall in this way. You just see this actor show up and you're like, hell yeah, I love Keith David. We meet Frank as the drifter Roddy Piper has made his way onto a construction site. Roddy Piper has gotten himself a job on this construction site. Long story short, Keith David tells Roddy of a place to eat and sleep, but Roddy refuses in silence at first. But then Roddy follows Keith David down the street. And when David gets suspicious, he turns and says, I don't like nobody following me unless I know why. And Roddy replies, well, I don't turn up with anybody till I see where he's going. There's some great quotes in this movie, Bill Bant. That's an initial thought. At this point, I'm like, we're 15 minutes in and not a great deal's happened. No action-packed cold open, just great music hook from John Carpenter and watching Roddy walk around. And hey, I'm actually pretty good. <laughs> I like the feel of this movie. It feels like a movie based on a sci-fi short story, which it is. It has a just-go-with-it concept and conceit. It's the typical, what if? What if this actually happened? Sci-fi scenario. And it works. As in, what if there was a covert? Like you said this, Bill Bant, what if there was a covert alien invasion and the aliens have somehow hidden their presence by hypnotizing the human race through TV signals and subliminal messaging. Hell yeah, it sounds like a cool idea to me. I'll just go with it. It reminds me of the stories of like Philip K. Dick. That's who I kept thinking of. 
not that I've actually read any of Philip K. Dick's stories, but I know he was a science fiction writer of many short stories, and they've been uh, made into many movies and provide for entertaining and thought-provoking ideas. Hey, back to Meg Foster. She's perfectly cast for this. And yes, you're right, Bill. Damn her. Even though we know she's not an alien ghoul, she sure comes off alien and just strange. After, you know, she's kidnapped by Roddy, she clearly somewhat is frightened, but is also very smart and manipulative. There's even a moment when she becomes suggestive as if she's willing to surrender her body to Roddy because he's got the guns and he's in control. She's crazy, man. Meg Foster. Uh, like you said, one of the best mano y mano on screen fight sequences of all time. I clocked it in at just over five minutes. Depending on the research, it's anywhere from five to six minutes long. It's just amazing. We'll get into it. Some great quotes other than the ones mentioned beforehand. Here's one from Keith David. The golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. Or here's another. Brother, life's a bitch. And she's back in heat. Ah. I'll save the rest of my initial thoughts for the additional thoughts segment later. I'm just going to wrap this up by saying this was a great rewatch. I went along for the ride, and although it has some goofy moments and some questionable wig work, you could ask a million questions about the aliens, how the subliminal messaging all works, and how the tech behind the sunglasses work, and how they were able to transfer that tech into eye contact lenses. If the aliens have no eyelids or lips, wouldn't their eye sockets and mouths get extremely dehydrated? And how do they all speak perfect English? And how I wish I heard what their native tongue sounded like? And how can a button on a watch make you disappear? But I just go with it. And it's a blast. What are your initial thoughts, Bill Dent? Wow. Good questions there. A lot of those I didn't think of there at the end. <laughs> Yeah, so watching this, I came to realize I love the second act of this movie. That's what it comes down to because when I watched it, I thought I had seen this more recently, and it had been a while. There was a lot of stuff in the first act I didn't remember, but it was kind of coming to me while the movie was going on. And then when we got to the third act, I couldn't remember any of it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I kind of had an idea of what was going on. And when the scene started, I'd be like, oh, yeah, okay. I kind of remember what happens now. If it came on TV, it was one of those, I watched it to a certain point, and then I was like, okay, I'm good. And then I would shut it off. But if anything Mm -hmm. happened during the second act, that's when I'm stopping what I'm doing and want to watch that second act, which, of course, includes the fight scene. Piper, for being technically his second movie, Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, he's actually passable at acting. And then there was other moments I was like, ooh, you should have done another take on that one. He's very up and down. It's a lot harder when you're going up against Keith David. He's just solid. Yeah, always. Yeah. So it definitely showed Piper's inexperience in some of the scenes with him. And some of the cuts they made with Piper, I was kind of surprised. I was like, yeah, I would have took that out because it just doesn't work or he doesn't sound right. Or did you do any more takes? So that was definitely initial thought. Like I said, Meg Foster. God damn you. But oh man, she looked really beautiful in this, though. Yeah. I was yeah. Like, gosh, she's kind of stunning. Oh, yeah. And the whole scene where she's with Nada Piper. So if we say Nada, we you know we're we're talking about Piper. It's even though his character's name is never said in the movie, it's what they say. It's in the credits. She's in the scene with him in her apartment, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh yeah, she's really good. The way she's kind of manipulating him, she's waiting for her move to try to take advantage. I was like, damn it, I hate you, but yeah. <laughs> She pulled it off great. And then even when she kind of sets them up at the end, spoiler, it's like anytime I see you on screen, I cannot trust you. I cannot trust you, Meg Foster. But um, 
yeah, overall, I still think it's a fun movie. I definitely saw a lot more flaws in it than I think I've ever experienced before. Mm. I love it. I love it, Bill Bant. I think, uh, yeah, we kind of had a little bit of an opposite reaction because I was more willing to overlook those flaws this time around. I really got on board with it, but I completely understand what you're talking about. Because it has such a great setup. Like the setup is so fascinating. Right. Like the first act, even though it's slow, it was interesting. It's engaging. It's engaging. Yeah. And then the second act is kind of fun. And then the third act lost me. Hmm. I got you. I can relate to that. I understand. That's interesting. That's this commentary on Meg Foster. I loved. I actually paused the movie at one point, and it was a brief relationship scene. I'll just call it that. And it was very brief uh, between Roddy and Meg Foster. And she looks almost porcelain is the word, like a porcelain doll with those ice, ice cold blue, light, light, light blue eyes and the perfect skin tone and complexion and the bone structure her face is just in the hair and she's just in really good shape she looks fantastic but almost unreal and so well cast in this role it makes me think what you were describing her too is that i try to try to understand like or i try I look at her and I try to figure out what she's thinking or feeling and it's so hard if she has such a straightforward kind of blank stare on her face it makes me think of watching the mandalorian when you can't see pedro pascal's face you just have a helmet over him so you had no idea what he's thinking or feeling but he'll tilt his head one way and you're like oh i know exactly what he's thinking and that's kind of the same thing with Meg Foster in this movie. She'll do something really subtle with a head tilt turn, something like a blink. It's just something else that she does. It's not necessarily even eye acting, but you get that she's smart and there's an evil lurking underneath. There's some uh, negative energy going on there and she's manipulative. So uh, she's great. Yeah, there's a scene with her when she shows up to the resistance meeting. And this is yeah. the first time not as seen Piper has seen her since... That's where I pause it. That's she, the moment I was yeah, talking about. Belt, yeah. yeah, belt him in the head and knocked him out a window almost to his death. Right. And instead of him being angry, he almost melts. But if you look at her, you're like, yeah, I can see it. I can see why he would think that. <laughs> That's a funny. Yeah, it's good. Just makes yeah. me hate her even more. Damn you, Meg Foster. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes or moments? There's going to be a little of an overlap here. I can feel it. No question about it. And I'm going straight to that second act, I believe, uh, that you were talking about. And you had mentioned the word discovery. And that's what I'm calling my first favorite scene, the discovery. But I'm going to go back here for the listeners, just in case, to do a little bit of setup. So up to this point, we know that the drifter, I'm calling him the drifter, not Nada, but the drifter, okay. that's Roddy Piper. He's wandered into the city. This is the very beginning. With only his sleeping bag and backpack filled with tools, he's homeless and looking for work. He finds a job at the construction site where he befriends fellow worker Keith David. His character is named Frank. So Frank takes the drifter to a shantytown, a sort of larger homeless encampment on the outskirts of town for food and shelter. We see some of the other homeless drifters watching a television set out in the open grounds where the programming is interrupted by a hacker warning the public that there's been a takeover of the corporate power structure that has been hypnotizing the public through subliminal signals and media messaging and ostensibly subjugating the public to their will, controlling them in order to rule them. Now, Roddy Piper discovers the hacker is broadcasting from a church across the street where there is not only a broadcasting studio, but a lab manufacturing these special sunglasses. Kind of weird. 
So that night, the police actually show up and raid the church and the homeless encampment. And Roddy, the next day, actually manages to grab a box of the special sunglasses from a hidden compartment in the church. He takes the box into the city and down a back alley to stash it away. And that's when he decides to try on a pair of these special sunglasses. And this is where my first favorite scene begins. Roddy starts seeing the real world, quote unquote. The world as it really is underneath. The world is now gone from color to being seen through these special sunglasses in all black and white. Now all the signage, magazines, billboards, and even money read subliminal messages, i.e. a billboard advertising computer equipment. Now with the glasses on, reads, Obey. Or a travel advertisement instead, now seeing it through the glasses, reads, marry and reproduce. Other signage reads, no independent thoughts, submit, consume, stay asleep, etc. So Roddy keeps taking the glasses off, seeing the world as what was normal and in color, and puts them back on to discover the subliminal messaging. Now, Roddy comes upon a magazine stand and starts paging through a magazine with the glasses on, seeing all the messaging when he looks up at another customer, and boom, he sees the gentleman customer not as a human being, but as an alien with features like a skull without skin, just thin patchy muscle tissue attached to a skull. And instead of eyes, these bulging crystal orbs and a like blackish nose. So he's this gentleman alien still wearing human clothing. But yeah, he's all alien underneath. So now Roddy's freaking out and he keeps putting the glasses on and off, on and off. So now Roddy walks around town wearing the sunglasses and sees all the aliens dressed up as humans interacting with real humans in everyday situations. Finally, Roddy stumbles, shocked and confused, into a local supermarket when he once again witnesses alien-human interaction when an elderly rich lady bumps into him and he sees she's an alien as well and he has some choice words for her, explaining that when he takes the glasses off, she has a formaldehyde face and then she suddenly starts speaking into her wristwatch, alerting the other aliens that Roddy is able to see them. Roddy leaves the supermarket, but when he is suddenly taken aside by two police officers who are also aliens, but badass Roddy decides to take immediate action and disarms one of them, then shoots both alien cops dead. Pretty freaking bold. And then he walks right out into public, brandishing a shotgun and wearing the cop bullet belt like a bandolier and proceeds to stumble into a bank where he notices and is noticed by several aliens. He decides to nonchalantly deliver the best quote ever of all time in the universe of the world, which is, I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubblegum. And he starts blasting several of the aliens with a shotgun, just blowing them away at will. Now the problem is that the aliens are collectively alerted and aware that he can see them, thus they view him as a potential threat, and the aliens start plastering his face all around town as a wanted murderer. Basically, that's the this discovery, the scenes kind of put together, but basically the scenes establish the major conceit of the film, the fact that the aliens live among us and are attempting to control us, and it establishes the magic sunglasses as a simple but awesome and fun MacGuffin. There's some cool visual effects here that are off-putting with the color scenes versus the black and white scene through the sunglasses. Then alien creature face makeup is pretty nasty and gnarly, and the overall conceptual design is cool. It's a cool, like you said, Bill, it's a sweet setup, establishing the overarching situation. One moment I want to shout out in between there is that moment when Roddy takes out the alien cops and he takes their weapons and he just walks right out into the street and cocks the shotgun right out into public. Just goes, oh yeah. <laughs> And just like total fucking badass. I'm like, hell yeah, let's go. It's ridiculous and amazing. First favorite scene. 
Yeah, that was mine also, and I I called it Seeing the Truth. I like that title. And I think the two things that stand out for me that you did not touch on, because I think you got everything, is just his reaction when he first puts on the glasses. Because he's walking along the sidewalk, and he doesn't understand why these boxes... He literally finds boxes of these glasses in the church. Mm -hmm. Doesn't know why they're making all these, and why the church got raided and burnt out, and the people that were in there got taken away and beat up. And he's walking along the sidewalk, and he puts the glasses on, and you notice right away, like, you don't see any of the signs yet. He just knows everything's black and white. And he pulls it off, like, what the hell? And then puts it on, and then he sees consume and it's the same reaction i think anyone would have is this some kind of trick is this trick glasses what what is this so just the way he reacts initially to the glasses feels very authentic and how he just walking along putting them on putting them off and then once he sees the first alien at the newsstand then he knows oh man this is a lot deeper than what you thought first you just think it's the government that's just doing this to us because he's, he's putting everything together because he's seen some of these broadcasts. Right. But right. now that he sees there's another species, he's like, holy shit, this is a lot bigger than I thought. And then there was another moment when he goes into the supermarket and he sees all the people in there and he sees that the aliens are interacting with humans. And there's these two guys and they're, they're having a quick discussion, which I don't think I've really ever noticed before, but I was listening in because it really does set up the whole basis of this movie where the one guy's disappointed that he doesn't get a promotion, but the Mm -hmm. alien got it. And the alien guy's like, Oh, it's okay, man. I'm sure, you know, you'll get it next time. He's like, yeah, but you got this one because it's all set up that way. The alien was going to get the promotion no matter what, even if this guy works his ass off because that's what these aliens are doing. They're taking over. We don't know what for necessarily. We don't really ever get that answer, but just that little segment right there when you've seen the movie and you're finding out why they're here i was like oh that encapsulate the whole movie it's the aliens are taking over and they're becoming the the one percent that what we would call now the one percenters mm-hmm. and that's what they're becoming and that little segment right there kind of emphasizes that and i was like oh yeah that's kind of cool i never really noticed that before but that's yeah that's what it's what's all about they're just stepping on top of us to take over and we're letting it happen we don't even realize it very scary it's just in the back of your head the whole time you're thinking is this really happening could this be really happening this is why i'm not getting a promotion did i just lose it to an alien it's a fun little scene so yeah the, the seeing the truth is cool 100 percent. i like your insight there and in pointing out some smart subtlety and cleverness in this writing and presentation of this like class separation that you see in the movie. It's something, you know, I watched this and initially was thinking, man, this is just a lot of fun, right? But then, you know, look at the research and understand that John Carpenter was trying to make some social commentary here, but then there's the entertainment factor as well that you, you know, you put in the equation. But that slight moment there between the two like office workers, like corporate office workers, one getting the promotion and the other not is cool. And then I was also paying attention to all of the aliens and they are all well to do. So they're very specifically they're all in either in nice business suits or the ladies are wearing fur coats and expensive necklaces and ensembles of sorts. So so it's very clear that the aliens are in the higher echelon of society and it's cool. It's smart. There is some subtlety to this that you can pick up on a rewatch. So good points. 
All right, so moving on to what will now be my second favorite scene. Yeah. And I would not be shocked if it's your second favorite scene. We got to talk about the big fight, man. The big what? fight. What? Between Frank and the Drifter. Yeah. Big fight. Long fight. To me, it is one of my favorite fights of all time in any movie. And the research says the fight's about five minutes, 20 seconds long. Mm-hmm. And you can't believe the two of them duke it out for this long, but it's so much fun. So Ronnie has been discovered by the aliens and he's luckily gotten away. And now he needs to find another pair of glasses. So he knows who is who. So he goes back to where he stashed the glasses and he comes across Frank, who's willing to give him some money, even though Frank thinks that Roddy Piper, Drifted, Nada, whatever you want to call it, whatever, whatever's on your scorecard, has killed a whole bunch of people. Right. Piper's trying to tell him, no, they were not people. Put on these glasses and you'll see what I mean. And Frank wants to have nothing to do with it. And Piper decides, nope, put these glasses on so I can prove to you what I'm saying is the truth. Frank is like, fuck you. Get out of my face. I don't want to see you again. Take the money. Awesome toss of the money, by the way, into the box. Right. <laughs> that was really cool. I was like, dude, that's a good shot. I wonder how many takes that took. No question. I thought the exact same thing. So that was some distance. Yeah. It's like a little trick shot almost. Yeah. And the two of them go at it. They exchange blows. They'll go back and forth. Each will get the upper hand. Frank will get a bunch of punches in, knock Piper down. Piper will get up, get a couple punches in on Frank, knock him down. Then Frank will get up and he keeps going back and forth. For five minutes, the two of them literally kick the shit out of each other. And it's all happens in this back alley. It's just so violent. They're so bloody. I just love there's actually one shot where you see the back of Frank's head and you can see where it's scraped across the cement because it's all raw and red. Brutal. And the whole time, all Roddy wants to do is just have him put these glasses on. And Frank right. is not going to do it under any circumstance. And no matter how much Roddy beats the crap out of him, he's not going to do it. And Frank keeps coming back. It goes back and forth. This one funny moment. Well, I wouldn't say it's funny. But there's a moment where Frank is on top of Rowdy, knees him in the groin five times. Oh, my God. We're just watching yeah. it. I'm literally bent over. So cringeworthy. Yes. And Roddy picks up this huge two by four and starts swinging it at Frank. And Frank dodges it twice. And then Frank picks up a bottle to try to defend himself. So Roddy takes the two by four, swings it. Misses him, smashes the back of a car window, and he starts laughing. Frank gets so mad, he smashes the bottle against the car, hoping he's going to use it as a weapon. But overbreaks it, so all he has, because normally you think it'd be like the shard end of the bottle, but all he has left is literally what the handle in his hand throws it down. They start laughing, but then they start wrestling some more, and then eventually... Rowdy gets him, puts a wrestling move where he slams him onto the concrete. Yeah. Because they're just exhausted. And he puts the glasses on him, picks him up and drags him and shows him what is going on. I mean, there's so much happening in the fight. I don't think two normal people would be able to take that kind of beating. But it's so great how it goes back and forth. It's one of those fights. You believe that the two of them are equally matched. Like you watch a lot of movie fights and you'd be like Stallone against some guys like half his size. Like, come on. 
is going to kick his ass in 30 seconds. But in this, you can certainly see that if the two of them were to fight, it would go toe-to-toe. But it's so fun. They use all the alley. Use every move possible. Yeah. There's yeah, one sure. point where Piper was going to do a cheap shot and hit Frank in the groin, and he blocks it. And he's like, you mother. And then Rowdy yeah, comes up with this. Yep, comes up with his with his head and gets him right in the chin and stuns him back and then throws some more punches. But it does end where Frank thinks he does have the upper hand, but he's so exhausted he can't get away. And then Piper just has just enough left to get him, put him in that flip and slam him into the concrete and then eventually get the glasses on him. And then the next shot is the two of them walking side by side in the sidewalk. And they're just stumbling around. Their faces are totally swollen. Frank had bit Piper at one point during the fight. And you literally see the bite mark still in his hand, which I thought was great that they actually remembered to put that on there. This is the fight among fights. Find it on YouTube. We'll post it in the show notes. Nothing beats it. That's saying a lot. Well done, my friend. I really don't have that much to add. Everything you said I had literally written down. So it ranks up there with the best of the best, hands down. It is one of the all-time bare-knuckle, street-level fight scenes on film. And that's saying something. There's a lot out there, of course. And you could probably even get nitpicky or, or categorize different fights, whether it be like Bruce Lee uh, types of bare knuckle fighting or, you know, different fighting styles and different movies. But there's something about the length of this and the brutality of it. This isn't really about martial arts. It's fun because you're watching it knowing that Roddy Piper is involved in this and there's going to have to be some wrestling choreography. So you're just going, where, where are the wrestling moves? But they don't overdo it. There aren't that many wrestling moves. No. I believe he finishes Frank off with a suplex of some kind, which some uh, kind, yeah. there's variations on the suplex, but that is a wrestling move. And it's a great, it's great that, that's what the fight does end with. I mean, that's probably Rowdy Roddy's uh, specialty. But you mentioned, Bill, the exhaustion. You are feeling it. When I do love the pauses in between the fight, because as ridiculous as the fight may seem, there is an added realism to it because of the makeup effects, because of the acting prowess of Keith David, and I think Rowdy's really good in this scene as well, being a professional wrestler. And... The choreography is wonderful, the variety of moves. And there's one moment when you literally see Frank going off to the side and huffing and puffing and Roddy finally gets up and then goes after him. Because like you said, Roddy's only goal here is to get Frank to put on the damn sunglasses in the middle of the fight when you think it's finally over. And this is two and a half minutes in, Frank you think going to put on the sunglasses and he just throws them onto the ground and is about to step on them. And you see Roddy go, no. And he leans down to pick up the sunglasses. Like, don't smash the, the special sunglasses. And Frank kicks him in the face. <laughs> it's like oh, yeah. hardcore. It's so hardcore. But yeah, it's an all-out street brawl. When they, they're walking down the street afterward with the faces swollen is brilliant. For some reason, why I just think fighting movies is the first one that pops in my head. Yes, there mm-hmm. are better choreographed fights, but I think it's the brutality and the Man, the stubbornness of the both of them that right, just that's makes a good it word. work yeah. so well. There's a silliness to it also that I, I love because you're just thinking, oh, my God, how many punches can they take? And there's mm-hmm. even a scene Frank knocks Piper down and he goes to help him up like, OK, I kicked your ass. We're done. And then when he goes to pick him up, he decks him again. And you're like, holy shit. Yeah. He is not happy with him. 
Because they're because <laughs> they're not friends. I mean, they've only known each other for maybe a week or two. But this is the only person that Piper knows that yeah, he's got right. to get someone on board that he's not going crazy by what he's seeing is real. He just needs someone else to put these goddamn glasses on and see that this is not pretend. And Frank's his only connection to the rest of the world at this point. You're absolutely right. The stakes are high, especially for Roddy Piper. And that's such a physical fight. It's such a viscerally physical fight. You really can feel it. There's a lot of different levels to it. It's not just the fact that the fight is so long, but the fact that it is in a back alley, it's the atmosphere that adds to it as well. You've got two really big guys, so you almost believe they could take a lot of punches. And then it feels gritty and dirty, and you feel like you're getting hit when you watch the fight versus... A lot of other fight sequences, you just know they're so well choreographed or timed that it's just more of you get an entertainment as like, wow, that's a really cool move. Or how did they do that? Or how did they film that? Or it's so quick. The fight is, you know, the, the punches and kicks and spins and uh, martial artistry is so perfected. But in this, it's just like somebody's going to die. <laughs> it's like... That's what How it many is. broken bones are there going to be? Some, or somebody's going to tire out. So who's going to outlast the other person it's a marathon it's an absolute marathon right yeah there's not a beauty to it that you see in other right it's just awesome go watch it on youtube yes it's a lot of fun all right uh what do you got for your third favorite scene or moment i'm gonna go with a really really brief scene more of a moment and we talked about this already this is later on when of course this is a common trope in these types of movies where there is uh, like a class separation and you have like a, an over uh, a ruling power that's dominating society and has the lower class under their boot. There's always a resistance. That's right. Or a movement. So you got to have like the freedom fighters. This movement is led by the actor Peter Jason, known as Gilbert as well as the hacker in this movie. And anyway, at this point, Roddy and Frank have been reunited with Gilbert and the others that used to be at the homeless encampment at the beginning of the film. And they're all kind of underground and in a hidden location now, like at a warehouse type of area. And they're discussing their plan of how they're going to move forward and uncover this alien takeover that's happening subliminally and that's when as you mentioned earlier bill bant that meg foster shows up once again just happens to show up at this location oh that's convenient and this is when <laughs> roddy says to frank i have to talk to someone and this like romantic music kicks in and it doesn't work at all. It's very cheesy and weird. And Roddy walks over to Meg to have this awful conversation that's poorly written. Because the last time, like you said, Bill, the last time we saw these two together, Meg Foster hit Roddy over the head with a bottle and threw him through a window. And he goes rolling down the hill. Actually, that's kind of a cool sequence into itself. But here in this scene, she's apologizing for her actions. He's like, oh, it's okay. And you're like, What's happening here? What are they going to make out now? The middle of this? This doesn't make any sense. And all, all of a sudden, a fantastic explosion happens, and the police come in, coming after the resistance slash movement to take them all out. And it just it surprised me. I thought it was a great moment. 
where they lull you into the sense of calm and safety almost between it's a love scene, but like really poorly written where it's a love sequence where it's just cheesy and it's just cheesy writing. It doesn't make any sense. And then all of a sudden, bam, you're snapped right out of it by some sort of catastrophic event. And so I appreciated that. I was like, boy, this scene is terrible. And then when the experiment was like, like almost like a wink at the other, they're like, yeah, we know it's terrible. That's why we're going to surprise it with this enormous explosion. And then an entire sequence of alien police and collaborators coming in and, and taking out the resistance. And we get a wonderful surprise, albeit brief appearance by L. Leon, the, the great. Yes. I'm glad you mentioned him. I had him in my additional notes in case we did. Okay, good. All good. you see is his silhouette, though. But you know I, it's him right away. You, that's, that's so awesome. I had it later on, too, but I was going to mention it now because he's in this sequence. And it's just so great to see him. We know him from so many films like Big Trouble in Little China. I think he was my, hey, it's that actor when we did that. And we mentioned that. that we're like, oh, we'll mention this guy so many times. And when I saw him in this, I'm like, it's been a while since we've seen him in something. So, And was, you uh, nailed it, though. Yeah, because he's, you know, in Die Hard, he's the one who eats the candy bars while he's waiting for the SWAT team to come in. And, and you know Al Young, you know, uh, Asian-American actor who's always um, doing kind of a small side character. Usually gets killed. He's always involved in action action sequences, martial artist, a great fighter. Uh, yeah, usually gets killed. But here, like you said, Bill, you barely see him. It is a silhouette, but you see his long hair and he kind of has a stance, like a, a kind of a physical physicality to him. And you're like, that's Al Young. That's yep. Al Young. It's great. That's uh, my long-winded moment. That's okay, because in a way, you almost set up my last favorite moment of the movie. And spoiler alert on this because it does involve Meg Foster. So in the final act of the movie, we find out that there's a signal coming from the TV station, Channel 54, and there's a satellite relay on the roof, and Frank and Piper have machine guns, they're milling everybody down, and they need to get on the roof to take out the satellite, and wow, Meg Foster just happens to work at this station. So they see her in the hallway. She's going to help them get to the roof. They're going to take out the satellite. They're going to show everybody that there's aliens. And Piper starts heading up the roof. And Holly is alone with Frank. Yeah. And I forgot how this happened. And I did a, oh, my God. I literally said it out loud when it happened. Holly does Frank in. And it's not nice. She literally pulls out a gun. And you see him bring it up to his temple. And it cuts away. But. It literally made my heart leap. Like, I knew Frank died in this, but I forgot exactly how it happened. But I knew Holly had something to do with it. But to see that she does it, she doesn't even think about it. She just does it. She's got him alone. She's going to take him out. And that was just brutal. And once again, Meg Foster, I freaking hate you. I'm glad you called this out. I put this down as a moment, and I wrote, no, because... We don't want to see Keith David go down like this. No. And we keep talking about Meg Foster playing the role of Holly Thompson. And Holly 
Well, we've been saying this whole time. She's just got an underlying, just something wrong with her. We know this from the get. You just sense there's something off about her. But we know that she's not an alien ghoul because in the beginning or near the beginning, when Roddy Piper kidnaps her, takes her because he needs her vehicle to get out of Dodge because now he's got everybody after him thinking he's a murderer. He's looking at her through the magic sunglasses and she's not an alien. So we know she's not an alien, but we still know something's off about her. And we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, when is it going to happen? And it happens all at the end there. You see her reach behind her back in a quick shot and you're like, "Uh uh-oh. And then it comes back to her and she's pulled out this small pistol and then puts it up against Frank's head and it cuts away. And you hear the gunshot and you're like, you got to be kidding me. You got to be kidding me. Meg Foster just killed Keith David. Come on. And that goes back to my earliest memories where I remember, oh, that's right. This has a bit of a darker ending and here it comes. And that's great, Bill. Thanks for calling that out because that's a super big bummer. And then that leads right into my final scene, which is the ending on the roof. I love it because it is dark, but it's great because you've got Roddy Piper up there. And he sees the the satellite dish uh, and the, you know, he's got, he can see through the glass. Uh, well, now they're actually wearing contact lenses because the resistance had modified the special sunglasses. Now you uh, into the special contact lenses, enabling everyone to see the truth, as Bill Bant would put it. So now Roddy Piper's looking at the giant satellite putting out the signal. It's got the cool like sci-fi device, alien device sending out the signal. And he's going to blast it to smithereens when Meg Foster walks up behind him with her gun drawn after she's just killed Frank. And he turns to her and he's like, oh, you're a baddie. And she's like, yeah, I'm bad. (laughs) Well, we know now that she's a collaborator. She's one of the humans that's taken side with the aliens, which is a cool aspect to this film. The fact that not only is there the aliens versus the lower class uh, impoverished human element, but there are humans that have taken up sides with the aliens in order to become because the aliens have promised them riches. They're like, well, we'll give you money if you team up with us to take over the world and we'll make your dreams come true. And she is one of them. She's a collaborator. And at the same time, there's a helicopter flying above with alien cops on it, and they're targeting him, that being Roddy Piper. And we think that Meg Foster, Holly, has Roddy dead to rights as she has her gun trained on him. But Roddy's got a little pistol of his own hidden up his sleeve, which he slowly pulls out. And he just does like a bit of like a quick draw and takes her out. He shoots her. She goes flying backward and he turns towards the satellite dish and the alien cops in the helicopter above are like giving him a countdown to drop his weapon, but he won't do it. And they shoot him in the back. And this again, dark ending. We're like, oh my God, now the main protagonist, our hero is going to die. But not before he shoots the satellite dish, taking out the signal. But this is what I love is right before he fires into this signal, he just says, oh, fuck it. (laughs) And shoots it. And when he falls... And with his dying breath and uh, last moments of life, he gives the cops up in the helicopter the finger, which is awesome. I just love it, man. It's just so like John Carpenter. Here he is in his last moment. And he's just, yeah, F you, flipping the bird. And it reminds me of another movie called Red Planet, which is one of my cult sci-fi classics uh, starring Val Kilmer. 
And at the end of that, after he's gone through hell, he's about to finally get off Mars and he just flips his middle finger and goes, fuck this planet and takes off. <laughs> it's just the same kind of ending. It's just the best when our protagonist just gives the finger. He's like, I'm done. So love that scene. I'm just going to shout out a couple other quick things. It's then at, right after that final scene, you got to have boobs in an 80s movie. Oh, yeah. And I almost put this down. You just got to have it because now that... Roddy's destroyed the signal that's been covering up this whole conspiracy by the aliens. Now all the humans can see the aliens for what they are. So the mask has been lifted. The curtain has risen and we can see the Wizard of Oz. We can see the aliens. And so we see a couple shots of people recognizing aliens among us. And the final shot is of a naked woman having sex with a man and she's on top of him and we see her boobs and she's looking at the TV where there's a broadcaster who has an alien face. And she's like, what? And then looks down at her lover that she is straddling and he is an alien. And he looks up at her and goes, hey, what's wrong, baby? <laughs> Literally got the credits. <laughs> it's just awesome. Very surprising that your heroes, neither of them make it. And that's something we didn't see very much, especially in action movies of the 80s. Our heroes would always make it to the final frame. Or maybe you'd lose one of them. But the fact that you lose both, I think that was kind of a surprise. But it works. When you think about it, an unknown that has now uncovered this alien takeover. And no one will know who did it. No one will know anything about this person. But because of it, hopefully we can save ourselves in the future. So yeah. good call on that. All right. So let us move on to our Swiss cheese and complaints department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Although this movie is delicious, it does have bullet holes. Yes. And if it doesn't have those bullet holes, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. Now, Jason, you asked a ton of great questions in the very beginning there. <laughs> that I don't think we'll be able to answer. But what other Swiss cheese or complaints that you do have that maybe we can work on. Bill, man, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to say, first off, that your suspension of disbelief must be intact before starting this movie. I would say to someone, for these types of movies, being like sci-fi action, horror, or a John Carpenter-directed movie, it's better to know what you're getting into and having this right state of mind because suspension of disbelief is required. It is based on a sci-fi short story, and there is a just-go-with-it factor. When you Once you understand what the conceit of the film is, things are in place here, and you just have to understand that's the world. That's how it is. The aliens are here. They're sending subliminal messages. They're targeting through subliminal signals through the television set, and the humans have special sunglasses that they made so that they can see the aliens. That's it. Don't ask why or how. That's You got to go with it. So I just wanted to preface our complaints with that. Okay. Here's my first question to you, actually, complaint. When Roddy Piper has made the discovery and now the aliens are alerted to the fact that Roddy can see them through the sunglasses, well, two alien cops tackle him into an alleyway. Roddy Piper gets the best of them, kills both of them in the alley, shooting them. By the way, I just love when Roddy and Keith David just indiscriminately blow away aliens throughout this movie. Oh, big time. Just shooting them. Shoot first, ask questions later. And my thing is, my complaint is, does nobody hear the fact that he shot them both basically point blank? 
and then takes their weapons and cocks the shotgun, walking right on into the pub. One of my favorite moments. But it's like, does nobody react to this at all? Humans or aliens in that sequence? I had this down too because they're busy sidewalks. Yeah, there's people everywhere. Right. A cop comes rolling into the alley to stop someone. 50 people are watching what's going on. Mm -hmm. So 50 people should have saw Piper shoot these two cops. Even after the first gunshot, that should have alerted people. In an alley, the way that would echo. Oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. But it seems like there's no one around until he steps out back to the street with the shotgun. And then all of a sudden, there's 800 people there again. But yeah, I felt the same way. I'm like, someone's got to see what's going on. And then he comes out of the alley with the shotgun, well, brandishing the shotgun, but also with the cop's belt, wearing it around his chest like a bandolier, and just walks then into a bank. Mm -hmm. There's no screams. Nobody's freaking out about the fact that this six foot something dude, big dude with guns is just walking around. Anyway, what's your first complaint? Or do you have any Swiss cheese commentary? This didn't make sense to me. I might have an answer, but I, I want to see if you have the same theory that I do. All right. So Piper has the glasses on. He sees that there's aliens among us. He goes into the grocery store, sees that half the patrons in the store are aliens. And then we have the woman that bumps into him. And then he turns to her and basically starts calling her out mm-hmm. that she's an alien. Why would you do that? In a store that is half full of these alien beings? I mean, well, that's a great question. I kind of thought of that as well. It seems like why give up the goose here? Not the time to do it. And I just chalked it up to the fact that he's in shock. <laughs> like, I mean, he's just, he's a little bit delusional and confused. And the fact that the glasses are, there's one thing we didn't mention is that there is a fatigue when you take the glasses off. Not, I don't know. I'm, I'm making excuses for Roddy in this moment as to why he would be calling her names. But we're, on, we're on the same wavelength here. Cause I, I think he the same is thing. a little bit manic in this moment. Like he's, I'm trying to put myself in his shoes where I've just made this gigantic discovery. It's like making first contact. Like you've seen, you're seeing an alien for the first time. How do you react? And they're there one moment and I take the sunglasses off. They're not there. I put them back on. There's aliens among us. And now I'm just delirious. I'm like, (laughs) you're an alien and you look, what does he say to her? Like your face was stuck in cheese dip since 1957. Right. Or Brazilian and uh, plastic surgeon, right? And it's almost—it's kind of—I think it's pretty funny actually because he makes a comment to another lady. He's like, "See, when I take my glasses off, you're normal, and I put them back on, you're still normal. But when I look at her, she's got—she's oh, he says something like she's fucking ugly and she's formaldehyde face. He's lost it in that moment. He's just kind of at his wit's end. Right. Part of me thinks is afterwards, he talks about how taking the glasses off, you almost feel like you're on drugs. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if he has some kind of high from it. And that's what just make that. Yeah. And kind of like you said that it, it almost gives him loose lips. And that's why he says it. But I'm like, man, I maybe would have first said it to the lady outside afterwards, not in a room full of these beings. And then the, even follow that up. The fact that then she notifies the other aliens in the supermarket that they're discovered. And then all the aliens start walking at Piper with their watches to their mouths, like, which is a great shot, but there's still half the people in the supermarket that are not aliens. Wouldn't you be watching this? Like what the fuck are all these people doing right now? 
yeah. why they all walking to the front holding watches to their mouth i don't know right seem kind of bizarre i totally agree and then there's the following sequence when he's in the bank and he starts blowing away the aliens and one of them is sending out the alert as well sending out a description of this tall blonde male and he's here in the bank whatever and roddy's about to shoot him and at the last moment he hits a button on his watch and disappears wouldn't the humans in the bank also be like hey that person just disappeared into thin air sorry the bank scene when he starts shooting up one of my favorite shots is when Piper shoots that teller and just blows them all over the wall. Yeah. I'm always like, oh my God, that's yeah. one of those. <laughs> Some serious squib effects. Oh, yeah. I just had to mention that. I was like, holy shit. For sure. He took a blast. Yeah. Here's a nitpicky one. After Roddy has kidnapped Meg Foster and has her take him back to her home, he's going through that state we were just talking about because he's taken the sunglasses off and now he's a little bit delirious like a narcotic effect like a drug-like effect and he's recovering because putting the glasses on does something to your your head it does something to your brain you get a head change from it but he still has the guns and he's still in charge and at one point says to her your name is holly right and then she's like yes holly thompson i believe or whatever this is nitpicky but how did he know her name she hadn't said it at that point I still I watched it again. I still don't know how he knew her name. Mm. It's just really, really getting into the nitty gritty there. I still don't know how he knew her name. I'd have to watch it again too because I'm not sure. Anyway, go for it. This bugs me every time I watch this movie. This part always bugs me, and I don't know why. So there's a scene when Piper goes back to retrieve the rest of the sunglasses because he he's lost the pair, and he goes into the alley and he goes to look in the trash can where he has them stashed and. The trash can's empty, and he's like, oh, shit, they're gone. But then we see a, a trash truck is at the end of the alley. So he goes to the trash truck, and I guess the two sanitation workers are having an argument in the front of the truck. So he opens the back of the truck, and he climbs in to look for the glasses. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, the truck starts to raise, and he gives us an expression of, oh, no. Right. And I'm like, oh, no, what? You're not in a trash compactor and you're going to get right. crushed. All you're going to do is slide off the back. The first time I saw it, I, I was thinking something huge was going to happen. And all he does is like kitty slide out of the back of the garbage Whee! truck. Yeah, totally agree. And he even tries to make it look like a lot worse than it does where he kind of rolls off everything. But that part bothers me every time. It does not work. I thought the exact same thing. I'm glad you brought it up. The moment doesn't work. They're going for a laugh. They're going for a joke. He's trying to ham it up in the moment. Like, oh, no. Oh, no. And nothing happens. It's funny because all the garbage, by the way, in that truck are is all like boxes and styrofoam. It's not yeah. even real trash trash. No. It's not like old rotted food or anything like that or really gross liquids of any kind. It's just boxes are falling on him and not really on top of him. It doesn't make any sense. He just slides down the back of it and then he's... He's fine. What, what, yeah, and the fact the sanitation workers don't even notice. Right, and then just drives off with the back open mm -hmm. <laughs> like that. It's like Someone knocked off your rearview mirrors? Come on, man. But yeah, that oh, that gets me every time. It's I a can't weird moment. It. I can't stand Yeah, it. it's a joke that doesn't work. Uh, yeah, something you said earlier, you know, about Roddy's performance being a little hit or miss and some things either could have been cut or not. I personally really, uh, I liked him a lot in this and I thought, some of his delivery 
was a little bit quirky the way he would say certain lines, but I thought it just made his character a little bit more unique. I don't know. He was kind of maybe bringing himself to it. And yes, he's raw. He's not an experienced actor. Uh, I just maybe am not expecting that much from him. However, there is one moment after the enormous fight sequence when Frank and Roddy are back at the hotel room and having a little bit of a heart to heart and Roddy decides to share a story about his abusive childhood at the hands of his dad. Like he says, yeah, my dad used to take me down by the river and he beat the crap out of me and told me about how the world works or something like that. And I'm like, we don't need to know this. I don't understand why he's telling us this story. It's not necessary for the character of the drifter. We aren't meant to know his background. It's just doesn't do anything to move the story forward unless there's some piece of information that he's going to express here that comes back into play and affects the story later on. It was just a weird moment. I didn't know why he was sharing that much in that moment. Yeah, you could cut it out. I agree with you. It didn't bother me, though. I think when he starts telling the story, I just kind of start tuning out a little bit, to be honest, because I know it's not important to the story. Yeah. Because you said it right, too. It doesn't say anything about his character. You kind of learn he's just one of those guys, hard day's work for a good day's pay. That's pretty much how he rolls. Yeah. Although I think the story does set up a quote that I'm going to say for the end. So you can think about it when I say the quote at the end. That's all I'll say. Anyway, what, what else do you have for complaints? Yeah. Why does Frank come all the way to Los Angeles from Detroit? There's no work between Detroit and Los Angeles. Yeah, that's all right. Could have went the other direction to maybe it's the Northeast area, New York. It, right. Philly. It's kind of weird. I thought the same thing, man. That's so funny, man. Swing over to Chicago, maybe a little bit closer. That's a long way to go. I don't know if that's supposed to give it's us. It's a like, nice story, though. I, I like Frank's backstory and just his take on life. But I'm like, dude, why are you coming all the way from Detroit? Yeah, it makes him a sympathetic character that he's a family man and he's got kids. You know, maybe if he came down from Washington or something, that maybe would have resonated with me a little bit more. However, I'll say this much. they, As far as I can tell, they never actually say Los Angeles. Because in the beginning, I was trying to figure out where they were, like what city they were. And then it becomes clear that they're in Los Angeles. I thought they had, it seemed like they had shot uh, in different cities at different times. And then in the credits, I saw some a thanks to Atlanta at some point. It, the, the shots... Majority of the movie is shot in in LA. Los Angeles, yes. Right. Regardless. That's true. I guess they really don't establish exactly where they're at. In the beginning, it seems a little bit more undetermined as to where what city they're in. But okay. I totally thought the same thing. I'm like, you came from Detroit? That seems far from wherever you are now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But you're right. There's no work between Detroit and here. Unless that's to establish the fact that there really is no work anywhere. Right. Because of what the aliens are doing. Right. It's possible. I thought this was a little weird when Roddy and Keith David make their way into the, what I call the alien underground bunker or alien underground lair. Mm -hmm. And they're going through these tunnels that are underground and they're being given a tour by one of the homeless men that they had met earlier at the encampment, who is now turned collaborator. And this collaborator is giving them, yeah, a tour of the tunnels. And they come across a transporter system that basically sends the aliens to and fro to Andromeda. They're being sent into space. So we see them like a teleporter from Star Trek 
they kind of get beamed into space, but they're underground. And it was weird to me. It just seemed like this was a bridge too far. I understand the concept. It's kind of cool because if there is a question you would have, they are answering it here. The question being, how did the aliens get here? Where do they come from? And there's like an underground transportation system that they have. They're using this alien technology. But it's weird that they're underground and we actually visually see them being shot into space, outer space. We see the stars in the distant galaxy. Right. I think, yeah, that's why the third act kind of bugs me a little bit. And it, it gives you the assumption that they're underground because when they go into that place, they go through a hole and they drop down. Right. So you think they're underground. So you really don't necessarily know that but it's weird too because in one of the tunnels leads to this giant banquet hall right why would you have this gorgeous banquet hall in the middle of these tunnels and then one of the tunnels just leads right to the station so i don't know if it's some kind of interdimensional space so depending where you go that that would make sense that they could see outside yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but it, it's not very well established i thought the same thing too i'm like wait they're underground but now they can can literally see the universe or the galaxy or whatever right. outer space itself how is yeah. this possible that was my, it was a little disconcerting and off-putting in that moment where i was like i'm a little off kilter here i don't know where they are it kind of confuses you and it, i don't think it needed to but i think that's an overall complaint and something you touched on earlier bill bent is that the third act as much as i found it entertaining i can see why you could really poke holes because they're touching upon things that are cool concepts but it doesn't feel as they're quite as well thought out as the second act mm-hmm. they just kind of touch on them because that banquet hall sequence is kind of cool too like as, as if we understand that here's a room full of collaborators that are going to be rewarded for helping the aliens take over and they're all going to be super wealthy and own all kinds of land and whatever they want oh you're getting an inside look but that's all you get is that short banquet hall sequence and then they move on so i don't know there's some confusing stuff that happens there yeah Major pet peeve, and I'm sure, I don't know why we haven't mentioned this in any of the other movies, especially action movies. So in the third act, the Drifter and Frank are trying to make their way to the satellite, and they have these two machine guns, and they're blowing guys away left and right with security detail, most of which are aliens. Right. Those guns only have so many bullets. So they blow these guys away and then just step over them. And I kept saying to myself, pick up their fucking guns. You're running out of ammo. Pick up their goddamn... It happens all the time. I don't understand these action movies when you know you can only carry so much ammo and it's going to run out. And you kill someone who has a weapon that has more ammunition that you have. Swap it out. You're going to run out of ammo. It's so egregious in this movie. I mean, they literally go down an empty hall, probably the same hallway, like 15 times, just shot in different angles, and would shoot these guys and walk over every time and not pick up a, a magazine because they all have the same guns or pick up their guns because you're going to run out of bullets, guys. All you did was pick up their guns. You didn't pick up any magazines. Mm-hmm. Pick up their goddamn guns and use their guns. So funny. Drive me so nuts. true. So cliche for 80s movies. It's the endless bullets trope. Yeah, that's a common sense thing where it's just inexplicable, but you're supposed to just go with it because it's an 80s action movie, I guess. Yeah. As if back then we just didn't think about those things. I probably didn't as much as a younger kid, but 
Anyway. But usually in the movies, they, they shoot them and they're far away. So you're not going to get there. But the fact they kept stepping over these guys, and I'm like, right. the gun's right there. Just pick it up. You know, you, you only have half a magazine now because you, you shot them 20 times. And speaking of like a game like Duke Nukem or any shooter game or any, a lot of the game, video games today, that's all you do is you're constantly picking up people's ammo. Right. That's just commonplace, but not in 80s movies. And I love that you brought up that sequence when they are, that's Roddy Piper and Keith David are walking down the hallways of the TV station, Cable 54, in order to get to the roof to take out the main signal. And they're just taking out security guards left and right, just blowing them away with their machine guns. It's wonderful because they're walking and shooting and walking and shooting. And it's intercut with almost these inserts of muzzle flare of the tips of the machine guns, but it's a static shot. The shot's not moving. It cuts from Piper and David walking down the hallway shooting and then an insert of the muzzle flare of a gun that's not moving at all. It's just really funny to me. Uh, well, that's all I had for complaints, man. I'm done with that for now. All right. One last one then for me. Go for it. You know, we're happy that uh, the drifter takes out the satellite at the end. But come on with that little, his little pop gun. I mean, this is the most important thing that the aliens have to disguise that they're on this planet and you can take it out with a little pop gun. I see. And this is, I couldn't remember a lot of the third act. I thought when he was pulling something out of his sleeve, I thought it was going to be a grenade. And he was going to use it to blow all of them up. Because I remember that he died and I remember that Holly died. Yay. But I couldn't remember how he did it. So I thought, oh, he's just going to blow them all up. And that was another thing that was even frustrating me when they were kept walking over everybody. I'm like, dude, they have something that's going to take out that satellite. And he just shoots it one time with a little BB gun and the whole thing's destroyed. Could have used something a little bit better. That's a great call. I also thought he was pulling a grenade out of his sleeve. Yeah. Takes out alien technology with a little pea shooter. So let's move on to, hey, it's that actor. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. Jason, who do you have for, hey, it's that actor? I am going with Tommy Morrison. Tommy Morrison is in this film uncredited as the character Dave, resistance fighter. That sounds like his action figure name. So Tommy Morrison, here's a little mini bio from IMDb. He was a heavyweight professional boxer who held the WBO heavyweight title in 1993. He made national news Thursday, February 15, 1996, when he announced that he was HIV positive. He'd retired from boxing and he was suspended from worldwide boxing when he tested positive prior to a boxing match against Arthur Weathers in Las Vegas. The suspension was lifted in 2006. He died September 1st, 2013 of multiple organ failures. Kind of a sad story there. But we know, and I know, I know Tommy Morrison from his role as Tommy in Rocky V from 1990. Bill Bant's favorite movie of all time. Definitely not. (laughs) Tommy Morrison has a third acting credit for playing the role of Leo in one episode of Sybil in 1996. Here's a little trivia as well. He had won the WBO Boxing Championship from George Foreman in 1993 and then lost the championship to Michael Bent in 1994. In 1988, his senior year, he won, I believe that's high school, if I'm not mistaken. He won the Kansas City Golden Gloves. In the Olympic trials, he advanced to the finals and lost to Army Sergeant Ray Mercer, who was eight years his senior, who then went on to win the gold medal in Seoul. 
Crazy. Seeing the Sylvester Stallone classic Rocky in 1976 was what really inspired him to go pro with his boxing. So a little bit about Tommy Morrison, who has a very, very, very small non-speaking uncredited role in this film. Yeah, that was interesting to see that he was one of the resistance fighters. I was going to look for him. I didn't bother. Oh, yeah. So I didn't. I sorry. I didn't mention that. Yeah, he's clearly there. I mean, it's Gilbert played by Peter Jason calls him out specifically. And you see him. He calls him out. He says, and Dave here works at KDR studios where he can take out the signal that it's clear shot of Tommy Morrison with like a girl. And he looks up and goes, oh, yeah, that's Tommy Morrison. I got to go back and watch now. Yeah, it's in that warehouse near the end. All right. So for me, my handset actor is Norman Alden who played the foreman, who gives yeah, the sure. character some work. So Norman was born in 1924. His first acting role was in the TV series This Is The Life in 1953. Many appearances in television show would follow, including, hold on for this list, and this is maybe 10% of what he was in, Leave It to Beaver, The George Burns and Gracie Allen Show, The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin, The Untouchables, Bonanza, My Favorite Martian, The Andy Griffith Show, Lassie, Hawaii Five-O, Mission Impossible, Ironside, Adam-12, Kojak, Welcome Back Carter, and Dallas. But if you're a fan of the 80s, you know Norman as Lou, who works at the soda shop in Back to the Future and won't let poor Marty McFly run a tab. Norman would continue to work in television until 2006, and we lost Norman, unfortunately, in 2012 of Natural Causes. So that's my hey, it's that actor, Norman Alden. Very good. All right, so moving on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about They Live? We had touched on this earlier. The fact that the idea for They Live came from a short story called 8 O'Clock in the Morning by Ray Nelson, originally published in the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction in November 1963, involving an alien invasion in the tradition of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which Nelson, along with artist Bill Ray, adapted into a story called Nada published in the Alien Encounters Comics Anthology in April 1986. John Carpenter describes Nelson's story as a DOA type of story in which a man is put in a trance by a strange hypnotist. When he awakens, he realizes that the entire human race has been hypnotized and that alien creatures are controlling humanity. He has only until 8 o'clock in the morning to solve the problem. Nice. All right, so John Carpenter is known for directing, writing, producing, and scoring his movies. But after a while, he grew a little bit tired with the idea of continuing to have his name plastered absolutely everywhere. So with that in mind, he decided that he'd use a pseudonym for They Live's screenplay credit. And Carpenter chose a pseudonym, Frank Armitage, which is a character from H.P. Lovecraft's story, The Dunwich Horror, which he picked just because he loved Lovecraft. If you look in the credits, Keith David's character name is Frank Armitage. Uh, I guess it's my turn. My turn. Yes. Uh, let's do this. Well, for the role of Nada, aka the Drifter, John Carpenter cast professional wrestler Roddy Piper, whom he had met at WrestleMania 3 earlier in 1987. For Carpenter, it was an easy choice. Unlike most Hollywood actors, Roddy has life written all over him. Carpenter was impressed with Keith David's performance in The Thing and needed someone who wouldn't be a traditional sidekick but could hold his own. To this end, Carpenter wrote the role of Frank specifically for Keith David. Awesome. So the scene in which Nada, the drifter, Piper, 
comes upon a supermarket full of aliens was the most expensive cost in the movie because every visible label in the store when not a put on the glasses had to be replaced with a plain white label revealing the subliminal messaging. The crew originally attempted to shoot the scene on location at a real supermarket, but they simply couldn't cover everything, so they had to build a set of the store instead. It was a very low-budget wow. movie. Most of their money went to the supermarket. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this, Bill Bant, while watching it, going, oh my gosh, how they had to shoot this. You know, they had to shoot a lot of, the, I mean, they're shooting like similar scenes twice. Because you have Roddy like walking up to a magazine stand and then they have to recreate the scene with all of the magazines stacked on the rows with all the oh, yeah. messages. You know, that's a lot of it's a lot of shooting. Mm-hmm. I would think that would be expensive, but that that's cool about that supermarket sequence. So Rotten Tomatoes ranked the fight scene between Roddy Piper's character Nada and Keith David's character Frank Armitage seventh on their list of the 20 greatest fight scenes ever. Seven. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's a lot of fight scenes out there, but yeah, I'd probably put it even high. How about number one? Top five. Top five. The the fight scene influenced The Wrestler, whose director, Darren Aronofsky, interpreted the scene as a spoof. The fight scene was also parodied by the TV show South Park. Yes. The communicators used by the guards near the end of the movie were, in fact, PKE meters used in Ghostbusters. Because this movie was so low budget, they had to rent props from prop stores, and they actually rented those. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you mentioned that. I was hoping you would, being such a huge Ghostbusters fan. I love it. John Carpenter brought real homeless folks into the production for several scenes and smaller characters and gave them food as well as paychecks. And Roddy Piper is quoted as saying, I thought that was a pretty classy thing to do. Yes, supposedly uh, Piper at one time was homeless himself. So he said some right, of those scenes were yeah, kind of tough before better days. So the infamous line, I've come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubblegum. That was not originally in Carpenter's script. That came straight from Roddy Piper. Awesome. Right, Piper, I guess, kept a book of lines that he would use for upcoming wrestling matches. And he let Carpenter borrow the book and he saw that line in there and said, this is awesome. It's got to be in the script. So he put it in. I love that. There's different versions of the story, but the line does come from Piper. That's so cool. So cool. The big fight sequence was designed, rehearsed, and choreographed in the backyard of director John Carpenter's production office. The fight between Roddy Piper and Keith David was only supposed to last 20 seconds, but Piper and David decided to fight it out for real, only faking the hits to the face and groin. They rehearsed the fight for three weeks. Carpenter was so impressed he kept the scene intact, which runs five minutes, 20 seconds. Yeah, and supposedly I read it took three days to shoot that. I believe I read that as well, yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, yeah. So awesome. All right, that's all I have for Facts and Trivia. Anything else? Me too. Nope, that's it. All right, so let's move on to box office. They Live was released on November 4th, 1988 in 1,463 theaters on an estimated budget of only $4 million. It grows $13 million domestically. The film opened number one at the U.S. box office, but dropped to number four the following week and then dropped out of the top 10 in its third week. Adjusted for inflation, They Live was Carpenter's 13th highest grossing movie domestically between Memoirs of an Invisible Man and Big Trouble in Little China. 
So moving on to reviews, Siskel and Ebert did not review They Live on their show, and I couldn't find anything online from a review from Ebert or Siskel. But Leonard Maltin, in his 2015 movie guide, gave They Live two out of four stars, stating, Satirical sci-fi adventure begins well, degenerates into standard urban action piece. Rotten Tomatoes gives a tomato meter score of 85%, and it has an IMDb rating of 7.2. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about They Live? Here's an additional thought. I mentioned the feel of this movie earlier, that it felt like it was based on a sci-fi short story, uh, and that I love those concepts. And there's also something something else, very simple. There's a, a basic tactile feel. It's a bit of a low-budget, street-level tactile feel about this movie, which works for me a lot. It works perfectly for the tone. It's dystopian, it's dirty, it's gritty. The things I find attractive about this movie is that it appeals to the boyhood filmmaker in me. They're taking everyday devices and turning them into sci-fi tools, which is something we would do as children, playing games in the backyard with whatever we found in the alley or the street or in the field, just using our imagination. In this movie... They're just using sunglasses and contact lenses and watches. And it reminds me of video film project that Chris Valenziano made in high school. Chris is one of our contemporaries and he works in the creative industry. And we've mentioned him several times in this podcast and hope to have him on as a guest here soon. But back in the day, back in high school, he was just a year under me. I believe he was a junior and I was a senior at this time. And he was kind enough to feature me in it as an actor. And I played a Terminator type of character that was traveling through time to apprehend the protagonist. And the device that initiated the time travel sequence was one of those slap wrap bracelets. You know, it's a bracelet that's initially like elongated and stiff. And then you slap it on your wrist and it wraps around your wrist. So that's what we used to signify that I was traveling in time. That that was the time travel device. But that's what it reminded me of. Works. Anyway, that's what we had. Exactly. And it was one of those conceits in the film and the video project, that is. And it was fun. And we made it work. And you just have to use your imagination to believe. And that's what it's all about. So it's fun watching this movie and feeling nostalgic about simpler times and making video projects for class. Cool. Yeah, I only have one question for additional thoughts and questions. And what do you think happens to the aliens after they get exposed? Hmm. I don't know if there's anything they can do at that point, right? Put on a different disguise of some core. I mean, yeah, I don't know. What would happen? Do you have any theories? I don't know. You can go in so many different directions. It's does it become like V and then we just try to kick the shit out of them? Hmm. Do they then try to attack us? Oh, I see what you're. Oh, God, I was reading your question the wrong way. Sorry. Oh, okay. You've been exposed. You have to go home now. They know who you are. Gotcha. They, the once the humans like Roddy Piper and, and everyone right. else, the, the resistance realizes that the like what happens, yeah. what happens after the end of this movie? Yes, because now they're they've been outed. Yeah, good question. It could go a million different ways. I would have to think that the entire human race would. I would hope 
if I'm being super hopeful, this would bring people together instead of like how Keith David in the beginning is making a point that what's happened here is not only has there been a more distinct class separation and now the lower class is really just fighting to survive and they're doing so by becoming more individualistic instead of working together they're at each other's throats or they'll just try to take what somebody else has or they'll kill you for what you have just to survive themselves versus Roddy Piper kind of is like, I'm a drifter going from town to town, just trying to play by the rules and and skate by, I would hope that the reveal of the aliens would have a unifying effect, that the humans would come together and then have this much larger revolt in overthrowing the aliens. But how they would go about doing it, I don't know. I mean, they're kind of, I think the aliens have a superior technology, obviously, but they can be defeated with human weaponry. So yeah, I guess it would be war. It would be an all-out war, wouldn't it? Yeah, possibly. Because we don't really know what their end game is. Are they eventually just want to take over the whole planet or they just basically just want to use this as a, as a luxury resort and Hey, have a good time, go to earth and you can enjoy all the pleasures of the planet because you'll be top dog. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. And that also leads into another additional, or I should say question that I had because at the resistance meeting, that third act of the film you know, when they're given the contact lenses to replace the sunglasses, we learn that the aliens are using global warming to make Earth more like their own planet. Uh, this is from, and they're depleting the Earth's resources for their own gain. So my question is, is that's what's really happening with our planet today in real life, in reality? Is that why we're experiencing climate change? Right, there's that's what I'm saying. In the, in the back, there's that, that little piece of the brain that's like all the way in the back there going, it could still be happening. This could be real. I'm just saying climate change. Like if you listen to everything the bearded man says, it's as relevant today as it was back in that movie. And it's spooky. It's like nothing has changed. Our problems are exactly the same. A couple things I forgot to mention. One, I, well, I did mention that John Carpenter was making social commentary here at the time. Reaganomics, the economics of the country at the time. He wasn't a big fan of it. And he used the over-commercialization of the country, and he was trying to make a bit of a statement there. But also, this movie definitely has some foreshadowing, right? I mean, there is some stuff there that can apply to our situation today, which yeah. is a little bit eerie. You can you can read into it. A Massive bit. consumerism. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Tons of things you do not need. Probably Amazon is probably run by this race. Probably that's what it is. Jeff Bezos is, yep. is the... Uh, <laughs> it could be, it could be. It's like, hey, we got to regroup, and we're going to start an online store. <laughs> oh boy! All right, we are going to be inundated person. with emails and conspiracy theories. Oh, I know. I hope so. Please send them our way. I can't wait. I hope. So. Yeah, let's. I'd love to read some. Uh, anything else for thoughts and questions? Just real quick, man. This is just your standard question here. Favorite John Carpenter sci-fi movie? Escape from New York. The Thing. Starman, They Live, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, Escape from L.A., or Ghosts of Mars? Thing, it's not even close. I think that's where I have to land, but it's tough for me because I'm a big fan of Starman, actually. I have a lot of nostalgic attachment to that one. That is a good one, though. Big, big fan of that movie. That's one, actually, Bill Bant, I have some real earliest memories of seeing that in the theater in Florida, of all places, with my oh. family. 
We'll have to get to that one at some point. Yeah, I mean, I'll save just that. So, for just so I can hear that story. It's not too exciting, but I, I that's something doesn't I matter. vividly remember. But yes, I think if I'm being you know serious, yes, The Thing has to be my favorite John Carpenter sci-fi film. Uh, I think that's it for my additional thoughts and deep questions, unless I had this thought that this might be ripe for a Netflix spinoff like series. Could be a limited series, maybe. Yeah, I'd like I think to see there's. Series. I think this could be expanded upon somehow. They could. Yeah, there's some stuff you could play with here. Talking remake for over a decade now. So, I and read that that Matt Reeves was, at one point had signed on. That'd be interesting. Yeah, they make everything into a television show now. Why the hell not? <laughs> oh, you know what I like too when the, the opening credits when they had the they live and then it uh, fades into the. I almost graffiti. put that down too. Yeah. That was that was cool. I was like, oh, that's pretty smart. I like that. I also love, which immediately follows that opening credit sequence, is the reveal of the hero as a train is passing by. Mm-hmm. The camera focuses on a train that's cruising on the tracks and you just see the cars going. <laughs> and then once the train has gone by, there's our hero standing in the background. All right, so let's move on to our rating. So on a scale of one to five sunglasses, what do you give They Live? I am giving this 3.5 pairs of sunglasses. I really enjoyed it. I I bought in. Is it perfect? Far from it. Solid John Carpenter material. It's an hour and a half, folks. An hour and 34 minutes. Hey, you're in, you're out. It's cool sci-fi dystopian future concept. With a fun conceit involving sunglasses. I think Roddy Piper has a great presence in this. He's has kind of a deliberate manner of being and speaking that I, I personally like. He kicks some serious alien ass and holds a machine gun with one hand, like Schwarzenegger. It's cool. Keith David is always a pleasure. The music score is spot on. Some pretty cool effects, some fun surprise moments. Makes you think for a second with uh, maybe a not-so-subliminal message of its own. I mean, I'd watch this again right now. I recommend it. So it was a really, really strong 3.5 pairs of sunglasses for me. All right. We got a match. I said three and a half, too. And first act, slow but intriguing. Second act, I can watch over and over and over again. It's the third act that just uh, just falls flat for me. Brings the rating down. The fight itself, that's a star right there for it. Yeah, I would recommend if you had seen it before, you, you should certainly watch it. There's definitely some cool themes scattered throughout makes you think a little bit but yeah i just don't think the ending hits the right notes well said i like this movie a lot i i I do it's is it his best sci-fi film no but there's a lot in there with it which is worth watching all right i think that about wraps it up for this week's episode as always thank you so much for listening please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platforms give us a review and rate us if you want to learn more about our show you can visit us at all 80s movies podcast.com in our next episode we'll be discussing the hit comedy fletch starring chevy chase hope you join us again have a totally great week everyone well bill I got news for him. Gonna be hell to pay. Cause I ain't daddy's little boy no more. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs>